Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. In this episode, I have a chat with Raynad, and he's a man in esports and gaming who's really done it all and he's still going. He's been a famous and top-level content creator, streamer, professional player, and created his own esports team and also garnished himself a Forbes 30 Under 30 nomination and an award, which is pretty interesting, but... The next movement is even more so, and this is why I wanted to bring him on. His esports team has raised some capital, they've gained some partners, and they're creating their own esports game. We've talked so much in this podcast and all across my personal LinkedIn content about how important it is to diversify income streams for esports teams, and this is a different diversification that I haven't seen yet. So we have a great conversation. He's a very cerebral guy, likes to talk slow, but think a lot about what he says. So enjoy this episode. I know I did. For those of you who have also lost your employment or are looking to skill up, we're trying to help here at Big Esports. We have an esports fundamentals course, which is helping people to understand an entry point into the employment within the esports and gaming market, whether you're coming straight out of college, university, high school, or whether you're trying to transition from another sport. To provide support for all of you, we're offering a pay-as-you-feel model. So you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash education. If you've lost your main line of employment and you can't afford to pay right now at all that's perfectly fine we're able to offer it up to you for free you can pay now you can pay later you can choose whatever you want the course is usually 127 dollars aud you can take it now for whatever you feel is appropriate or whatever you're able to afford hopefully this will help a few of you get back on your feet in the short term and also the long term Brainhead, welcome we're live how are you i'm doing great how are you yeah good thanks mate it was it was funny i um i had a quick google the other day um, and, and kind of just kind of looked up your basic bio and the, the basic description was something along the lines of one of the most successful slash controversial uh, Hearthstone and, and card game players to grace the market. So I thought it might be an interesting way to, to kick off the discussion. But for all those people listening at home, can, you've obviously had a, quite a star-studded history in the market across multiple different levels. So can you let the people know, know sorry, who are watching kind of your history in the space from player, streamer, content creator, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to go over it. Um, yeah, I, I had like a few a few bios written at this point, and they're usually like an afterthought after like an interview or an article or something, and um, or like a panel. Uh, and I've noticed the bios just feel very differently depending on who wrote them. Uh, it's like all of them described <laughs> very different people. But um, yeah, yeah, uh, I am a dinosaur in the esports world. I'm at the ripe old age of twenty eight. Uh, get called a boomer daily now um it's been a fun industry though to be a part of over the years i got in real early um you know my my background's really in in paper card games uh in person and then i eventually transitioned that into online card games uh once i found twitch um and yeah i got in pretty early on twitch uh, 2012 it was like i think the site just launched like halfway into 2011 so it it was just out and um yeah i got partnered pretty quick in a couple weeks um after i started streaming and um yeah just kept at it you know eventually hearthstone came out really blew up the um card game genre um and i tried to time my going all in with streaming to kind of align with hearthstone coming out so um it worked out the game the game blew up um i was the best player in the world at hearthstone for the first like i don't know like during the beta basically uh when i when i played full-time uh and uh, i built up an audience on twitch with that and then using that i created tempo storm uh which started as an esports team um and it operated pretty traditionally, you know, just one game. Um, 
all the other teams at the time had started in League of Legends, basically, or Counter-Strike. And ours was the only team that had ever started in, in Hearthstone. Um, so we thought that was kind of unique uh, strategy game market. You know, it's smaller, but it's um, they're really engaged. It's just different. Um, but yeah, we just kept adding more teams, kept growing, eventually transitioned that into a media company. And um, now we're doing, you know, everything from production to making our own game. Uh, it's really pushing what we can do with, like, live interactive content. So, um, yeah, the company now is just, super diversified but we started out as uh, you know basically a, a soccer club for video games just like most teams yeah and it, and it seems that most you know it's that diversification has become essential like to any esports team if they want to exist and they have they're going away from that traditional sports model do you think that any teams now or in the future are going to be able to survive if they stay on that traditional soccer team model 12 month sponsorship just trying to win various game titles I think that market's big enough that a couple teams will do it. But uh, to be honest, like the business model was never good. And I mean, since like, the, you know, 2014, I'm confused about why people were, uh, everybody was so hell bent on using the same model. I mean, at traditional esports team, what you're basically doing is you're, uh, you're like a middleman between brands and influencers. And you're not just like connecting the two, you are paying the influencer to represent you. So you're assuming a lot of risk, right? You're paying a kid, you know, thousands of dollars a month hoping that you can sell more than thousands of dollars a month uh, in brand deals to break even on them and th that model is just just like with which parties assuming the risk the margins everything about it is just a you know i'm not a big fan of that model um so really i think esports team did need to evolve and you know I, I think it is why we're seeing a lot of teams make this shift and you know personally i think the the when I started in the industry, you know, maybe six years ago, I used to think about everything in terms of like revenue. I thought revenue was like the one path to truth, you know, just like follow the money, uh, not the hype. Um, mm. And lately I've been thinking about uh, power a lot more than money. And I've been noticing that basically the, uh, you know, the, the, the brands that have more control over their own destiny, you know, own their own IP, um, aren't beholden to a publisher or a league that, they spent all their money to get into. Um, mm. uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think a, a team with independence is just an inherently better business. So, um, you know, our, our, our goal is basically a transition from a service company, right? You're basically a service company as a traditional esports team because you're just promoting other people's products using your influencers. Um, mm. Rather than being a service company, I wanted to be a product company. And I think that's a transition any real business is going to have to make. So, um, yeah, I think what you're describing is something that the influencers have felt when, you know, like you were saying, if, if you're beholden 100% to franchises, you don't really own your product, you don't really own, you know, your brand and who you are. And I think influencers have found the same things, you know, especially at first with the apocalypse with YouTube. You know, these influencers were relying on YouTube to basically employ them, to sell ads on their behalf, and that's where they were getting the majority of their money from. And when that dried up, it didn't happen or, you know, either streamers that got banned on Twitch either for a few days or permanently, you know, realizing that, hey, they don't really own their audience. It's kind of like Twitch is just lending the audience to these people. And, you know, while these platforms have significant power, like there's, I'm sure you get them too, there's new social networks that are launching every single day that want to give you that creator tick. You know, like when you download Instagram, it tells you to follow Kim Kardashian the second you install it. They want you to be those kind of people. So, yes, there is some power, but... Yeah, talking with some of these influencers as to do you actually own these fans? Do you have um, your own company or app that they go on to? Do you have your own email chain that you can market to them? What happens if you get banned off Instagram 
And I think the closest we've seen really at the moment is semi-controversial people will have two or three Instagrams, two or three Twitter accounts as backups. But if you get new to that platform, it's like, what do you own? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so every decision we've been making has kind of been with that in mind. It's like, you know, we, we want to make sure that everything we're building out right now, everything we're investing resources into, everything that's a, a core foundation of our company, it, all of those things are something that we hold the reins to. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's a lot of the, the thinking that, that led us to, um, you know, like being the first team to develop our own game um, or, uh, you know, start pioneering in the non-gaming categories on live stream platforms, doing a lot of the, the stuff in the IRL or the music space. Um, mm. So, yeah. So like the, the card gaming market, or as, as you described, kind of strategy game market, that's something that's really not known to me very well. I'd, I'd love to start off your explanation for me with understanding what's the typecast of person that plays these type of games. You know, you think if you're thinking about Fortnite, you've got a typecast in mind. Yeah. You think about CSGO, you've got a typecast. What what kind of people play Hearthstone and other card games? Sure, man. Yeah, I mean, I'll, yeah, I mean, I can talk and nausea about that stuff for sure. I just, just out of curiosity, though, like, why, why, why don't you like card games? Have you played many? For me, it's, I have played a few. I, like, it's a, maybe it'll help if I describe my journey. So I started off as anyone did, you know, playing Warcraft 2 and whatever. I'm the same age as you. So, like, when I was four playing Warcraft and ended up getting sucked into World of Warcraft and realizing that I don't want to be stuck in an hour and a half instance with people I don't know. Mm. So I switched to FPS titles, which were more gay and exciting, but also I could leave at any time. But I think for me, too, it's, it's the action is different. I don't like... I don't like uh, setting up decks beforehand, for example. Um, part of the reason I'm not a big fan of League of Legends is the runes. Like, that doesn't excite me as much. And say, World of Warcraft, I think the reason I never reached max level, um, and similar with Diablo, kind of only got casually into it, is because when you have to start going through all of your values, you know, certain status resist on items and, and looking at two items next to each other, you know, which one's better? And often if someone doesn't give me the answer, I just give up straight away where I think I prefer the strategy of Counter-Strike, which is, you know, uh, uh, and, and to say that too, in Counter-Strike, my team, we were complete nerds. You know, we had more strategy in Australia, easily 4X more strategy than anyone else did, but it was different. It was different type of strategy. A lot of it was on the fly as well, rather than that pre-preparation. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that might be part of it. I completely agree with everything you just said. Um, uh, I think, you know, a big part of the reason, well, one big revelation we had in the last couple of weeks, uh, actually, is that, you know, moving forward, when we talk about the game that we're making, we're going to be calling it a strategy game. We're not going to be calling it a card game. Now, it's a strategy mm-hmm. game where you play with and, and you know, uh, acquire flat two-dimensional objects that are very card-like, but we're not going to, definitely not going to call it a card game. I, I think there's, um, there's a bit of a stigma when it comes to the, the word or like the phrase card game. I think there's a, a, a this yeah. huge population of FPS players that have just decided they don't like card games because they've played, you know, they've played a few and they're all essentially a, a clone of magic um, where, mm-hmm. you know, they all have the same progression system, right? The way that you progress your account is you open boosters, you get more cards. Uh, they all have the same uh, main game design problem, which is that you need to build your deck before you play the game. You said you don't enjoy that part. I, I actually um, agree that a card game is better without separating the deck building and the playing phases. So with our game, we basically scrapped all that stuff. There's no collection of cards that you need to build. And there's also um, no way to copy strategies online or like build a deck before you play. You just jump in and go. 
And as you're playing, you make decisions to try to make the best strategy. Um, and that's something that I think just has a lot more uh, universal appeal and um, something that still is really going to, you know, really hit home with that core strategy game playing audience. Um, you asked earlier kind of what, what that audience is like. So I kind of do want to talk a bit about that because these, these folks are... Um, there, there is a demographic, you know, the whole live streaming and an esports scene has started growing. And since it started growing, I've noticed um, there's now like different strata, I guess is the word. Um, mm -hmm. It used to just be one community. It felt like one age group all had the same hobby. But now, you know, Twitch has been around for a while. There, there's, there's the young kids watching the stuff they like to watch. There's the older crowd. There's everything in between. Um, mm -hmm. all the non-gaming categories are starting to blow up like IRL and music. So, you know, you know, for us, we see our core fan as our core player as is, um, somebody that is financially independent or in college. Um, our fan base is usually like 18 to 35, anywhere around there. We don't really get like that, you know, seven to 16 YouTube crowd as much. Um, mm -hmm. we, uh, don't focus on on younger titles like Fortnite as much as we do, um, you know, like strategy games or games that are um, just a little bit more. Uh, they just have like a, a more mature player base. Basically, um, we want those like high retention fans. Folks are going to be, you know, not fair weather. Folks are going to be fans of Tempo for life. Um, that's really the, the fan that we're trying to build. So, you know, these folks like Reddit. They like uh, Elon Musk. They like Bernie. They like, uh, you know, th this is like the demographic. These are the folks that. You know, maybe they have a board game night. They play D and D with their friends. Um, you know, they have some you know, multiple nerdy hobbies, not just not just one or two. So um, mm -hmm. that we really think is is kind of the um, and most of them are male too. That, that's another that, that's something we'd like to change. We'd like to to get um, just more females in the scene, uh, of course, if possible. Um, that's been crazy to see that happening over the last couple of years. It's it's <laughs> when I started, it was I think Twitch was ninety five percent male. Uh, the viewers, that's yeah. the stats, but. Definitely changed a lot. Um, but yeah, th th that's our core fan. That's the kind of the, um, the type of person that, uh, you know, we're, we're building the game for. And we think that, uh, you know, if we focus on retention rather than just getting a, those initial downloads, um, we're going to have a game that, that really is something people enjoy playing, you know, two years after it comes out, four years, six years after it comes out. And it's something we can keep iterating on and building. And it's something that, uh, you know, never gets less fun because you solve it, the game can't be solved. Yeah, those, those we think are like all the all the real strengths. Yeah, I think another way I was thinking while you were talking is is maybe I prefer games that are mechanics, not knowledge. I mm -hmm. don't want to rely on a test to make sure that I understand the latest card building procedures and understand which ones are more powerful at any certain time. I would rather be the person in Counter Strike that can do a one v one and rely on my intuition in the game, or rely on my aim to beat someone, or my teamwork or skills or something like that. Another interesting card game I played a little bit was Prismata. Are you aware of that game? Yeah, yeah I think I actually played in the first tournament for that game way back in the day. This was like oh, there you go. six years ago. Yeah, yeah, um, it's like it's like an RTS meets card game, and I think it was really interesting for me once again as an FPS player until it got too complex. Until you started having way too many cards on the deck, and then you started having you know three different races you could play, and then I kind of. You know, I was very hooked on the game until that point. I think I threw my hands up and went, no, never again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, it, you know, it, it's a lot, it's, it's a lot easier to make a bad card game than it is to make a, a bad shooter. Uh, I mean, the, the, the thing about like an FPS or like a multiplayer game is that since you have like multiple humans in one lobby, um, your game is going to be different every time just 
period, because nobody's going to move in a pixel perfect way the same way between games. Um, they're going to, you know, run at a slightly different angle, peak at a different time. Um, a shooter just has all this like inherent entropy that makes every game feel different in a very good way. And in a card game, it's like you have to, you have to rigidly define everything. Um, so honestly, it's just really easy to fuck that up and end up with a game that, um, you know, is like too complex or not complex enough, or there's like too little design space or too much design space. It's, um, you can't really have too much design space, but um, mm. it's really hard to get everything just right because you have to like manually create everything. Whereas in most other genres of games, um, the fun is kind of the emergent property. Like you design a few things and then the players make the fun in, in mm. your sandbox. Um, in the levels that you created. Um, and that's that's Battlefield 2's whole marketing, or Battlefield as a whole, that's their whole marketing tactic, right? We give you a big map, we give you lots of big toys to play with and guns and go make your memories. Exactly, exactly. So if you were to, what, what if I use the same typecast mold then? What if you were typecast your esports team? If you were to typecast 100 Thieves, you know, into one or a couple of words, you'd say content. Phase, you'd say kind of influences and culture. I think Team Liquid, you would say competitive, can, you know, competitive and winning. Like, what about what about your team up until now and into the future? That's a very good question. I just have like an inherent problem with the comparison. Uh, our company never like we haven't had that business model since like 2016 um, of being an esports team that is you know trying to sign players, win tournaments, purely competitive focused, sprinkle some content. That's not really our model. Uh, we're a media company. Like what, what, what we focus on is this big emergence of interactive media that, that's coming up. Uh, and we think that esports and, and Twitch growing is just a symptom of people craving interactivity in the media that they consume. So mm. uh, the first, like the early adopters of that wave of entertainment consumers that want their inter- entertainment to be interactive the first people that did it are the gamers, right? They're tech savvy, they're young. Uh, they're always going to be early adopters for everything cell phones, gadgets, like anything. Um, mm. But we th- I think the rest of the growth in esports, the rest of the growth on Twitch, um, it's not going to be from gaming fans. It can't be. The market's already fully saturated. Uh, what gamer hasn't heard of Twitch at this point? Um, I, all the growth is going to be from the emerging categories. It's going to be, you know, what's called mm. like just chatting or IRL right now. That's going to split up into thousands of categories, right? And um, you're going to have everything from cooking shows, singer, songwriter, musicians, travel shows, reality TV, uh, a bunch of people just reacting to Gordon Ramsay videos. You're going to get the whole, the whole spread of, of content really emerging. And, um, you, you know, our, our goal, you know, is not just to like sign the biggest teams and the biggest games and just keep, keep signing more players. Our goal is to be a product company that is creating content as a product um, and, and selling it to the fan base that we cultivated. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that explanation because I've come to the opinion, you know, in co- the content I've been doing over the past couple of weeks, that so many of these esports teams are thinking about themselves as corporations, not as startups. And I'm trying to push those kind of questions towards them because I think often it's the same thing. Let's raise 10 million. Let's try to get the best Counter Strike League of Legends Overwatch team. Let's sell merchandise from day one with their logo on it. Let's try to sign on Razor and Alienware and Toyota. And, you know, let's go. Let's go win some games. And I think that. You know, like you were saying, the thoughts that you've had from many years ago, you know, I've started thinking about a lot recently that it seems like a fairly flawed model and the teams that do have these success and I think, you know, will be the first billion-dollar teams are these ones like FaZe and, 
you know, FaZe is barely even esports at all. You know, they're they're one percent, five percent esports at most. They got a Counter Strike team, and I found out the other day they had a Rainbow Six team. And I'm friends with the chief revenue officer. I didn't even know that. <laughs> but for them, you know, it's about the rappers. It's about the lifestyle, the content. And for me, it's it's interesting trying to now silo these esports teams and seeing where they're going to. You know, obviously, you're doing something that I didn't expect to see at all, which is game development. But then you're seeing, you know, 100 Thieves. They use that similar explanation, like you were saying, is we're a media organisation. That's what they are first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more teams that go the agency route. And that's something that I've been trying to push teams a lot in the past, even in Australia, who has struggled. Really can. I don't think you can be a representative of a player that's also playing for you, I think. So at least not, in- so not, a, not necessarily a player, but services and, and brands. So I think part of what I was talking to these teams about is it's drop time to sell merchandise. No one wants to buy your logo because you don't have any fans. But, you know, I was getting uh, four, five, six years ago, I was getting thermal take to pay me $500 to go to talk to a school and implement their products in there. I was doing that for Gigabyte. I was doing that for Gigabyte and Intel. I did a university tour doing the same thing around Australia. You know, I was doing online promo for NVIDIA, sorry, for AMD, teaching people how to build computers with AMD products and talking to these teams and saying, instead of doing a 12-month sponsorship, why don't you just become like a PR agency and you just use your your weight as, as part of that? And it grows you, it grows your revenue, and, you know, it can, can grow some other things. But... For, for you guys, like why – it seems that you've got a lot of knowledge about game development and stuff. Do you have a history in there at all? Like like why why game development? Um, yeah, actually, I mean, I do have a bit of a history. Um, I started programming pretty young, and I, and I was making my first games at 13. And um, just kind of, you know, it's always been a passion of mine. And eventually, just right around the time I was about 15, I mean, really 14, I found Magic the Gathering, which was like the first card game I played. Um, mm-hmm. I got very good, very fast, like very fast. And um, I just grinded so hard for the first two or three years that I basically transitioned from wanting to do the game design side of the industry into just being a player. Um, and at the time, I mean, as you all know, you know, there's no money in the industry. So to, to everyone in the world, it just sounded ridiculous uh, to play games for a living. But, um, you know, there have been some folks in the past, like Fatality and um, you know, the Call of Duty guys on YouTube that, that I saw have success doing it, the League of Legends guys. Um, I knew I knew it could happen. I just didn't know if it could work with a card game. So, Yeah, more, more so just talking about your interest in why a card game or, or just, just why, why game development as a whole. Because as all these oh, teams yeah. are looking for alternate sources of revenue, I would, I would say that I, I never predicted someone to, to launch a game, but it, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I'd love to tell you, tell you why. I mean, look, like the, the passion side of it is that, you know, I do love game design. I've always been doing it. Thought I would do it since I was a kid. The the practical, honest reason is, um, is actually the business reasons that made me uh, commit to, to starting a project and, and developing a game. Um, yeah. Basically, we, you know, I, I said we operate more as a media company rather than an esports team. And that, 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 that is a functional difference. It's not just like semantics. Um, basically, a bigger and bigger part of our revenue became uh, promoting the games of other publishers. And we actually started, uh, mm-hmm. when we're, to this day, we have contracts where we do all the North American marketing uh, for for some games. Um, so publishers would partner with us directly, right? We did a campaign with Blizzard, did a campaign with, uh, you know, just several high-profile Asian companies. I don't, I don't want to like, um, mm-hmm. yeah. So So basically like, we noticed this was becoming a bigger and bigger revenue stream. We were doing more and more of these campaigns um, and we were converting really well. 
Like usually when esports teams promote products, it's mostly a play for clout and optics. And it, it, it's it's more about perception, less about conversions. But the game downloads are actually converting really well. So we actually were doing very ROI positive campaigns. We we're wondering why is this? Well, it turns out like we just have a huge stream network and a really big website of strategy game fans. And when we promoted strategy games to them, um, this is just, it turns out this is how people decide what game they want to play these days, right? They're not going to read a IGN review that somebody paid for. Uh, they're just going to watch somebody play it live. Um, and we have all those people. So we basically realized we have the distribution and um, just looked into uh, owning the product. And, you know, we promoted a huge range of games, some phenomenal games, some completely terrible. Um, and we basically took our, um, like, most conservative projections, most conservative estimates, like, oh, man, what if the game, what if we'd made a game, it came out and it bombed? Um, what happens? Uh, it turns out even that scenario was, like, quite profitable for us, um, mostly because card games are just pretty inexpensive to make compared to other genres. So, yeah, we just decided to pull the trigger on it, um, you know, partnered with some like-minded investors are, uh, you know, have been great to work with and, and really see the opportunity the same way we do. Um, and yeah, and now we're just building it. Yeah. There's like three, three things I want to pull out of that. Number one is, is around KPI based marketing that doesn't exist a lot in esports teams. And I think once again, going back to the chief revenue officer from phase, you know, that's a major concern for him with T1 esports orgs, like these T ones that are looking to resign soon with these big companies that are sponsored them. And, you know, here's a basic example is you're sponsoring an NFL team. They can say, yes, Toyota will provide you with an 8% uplift in sales. You know, here's our proof of that. Often, you know, I've got some T1 esports teams that have requested for me to help them to sell sponsorship. And their sponsorship proposal really just talks about how many Twitter followers they have, how much money they've won, and that they'll do two pieces of content for you per month without telling you what that content is, where it goes out to, who pays for it to be produced, anything like that whatsoever. Yeah. So I think that's one, and, and that's something that I'm trying to work a lot with influencers on at the moment, and I'm doing with a, a wagering company I'm working with where we're still paying the influencer a minimum guarantee, but it's definitely lower than their normal asking price. But we're, we're doing a KPI-based sales campaign where at minimum their numbers that they, that they should reach for us to re-sign will achieve them about 60% on top of what they're already being paid. So we're still going to pay them fairly well and the commissions are very healthy <clears throat> because it's a betting company, they've got big CPA. But the onus is really on the influencer and we'll sign some minimum deliverables with them but communicate to them and say, hey, look, here's where you could be reaching um, and we're going to help you as much as possible to get there to make those extra sales. But the onus is really on you. And I think one of my employees said it really well in the fact that in the past, especially on Instagram, influencers have been like billboards where they're like, give me $3,000, I'll post about your products on an Instagram post and whatever happens, happens. And that's that's basically it. And you can make a best guess as to, okay, this person's, you know, I'll sponsor Raynad because I know that his audience is nerdy and I'm making a product that's towards nerdy people and he's got 50,000 followers, so let's just see what happens. But it's it's now switching where the brands are definitely requesting this. And there's a company in Australia who I'm quite close with who's a retailer and they spend a million dollars Australian a month on Google ads. Um, and they're finding it very hard to justify spending 5K on an influencer campaign because they say to me, look, I know I spend a million and I get back, I don't know how much, you could say a million three. So that makes sense to them. So they'll just keep putting that in forever until that disappears. But they, they can't say that, yes, Chris, I'll give you 
you know, a million dollars and you're definitely going to drive me back 1.5, even 1.1 in influencer marketing. It's, it's definitely hard like that. And uh, there, there's, there's a couple of really important things you, you touched on there. I kind of want to address like, um, first sure. of all, what you're describing is basically refining your process and getting better at execution. And this is like just the thing that like, for whatever reason, nobody is trying this in esports. Nobody is trying to build a real company. Nobody tracks KPIs. Nobody's doing shit. I mean, like we're, we're you know, I like to think we do a good job of this. It's been our focus for two years is like just really grinding down internal processes and operations. And that, that's always going to be our focus. But um, mm. yeah, you know, a lot of folks are coming in with the this idea of, hey, esports has a lot of hype. It's a very attractive word to investors. It's a good way to get your foot in the door for meetings. Um, let's take a top-down approach, come in the space, raise a shitload of money and try to own everything. Um, the reality is it's just not going to be that kind of space. Like by definition, it has to be fragmented. First of all, nobody can just come in and own the space. It's not going to be like a tech sector where there's one winner, right? Like the MLB isn't going to work with just the Yankees. You need the other teams. Uh, so I, I think this, the space will always be diversified. It just has to be. I'll, I also think, you know, people need to start thinking about the things that are actually important. What you're describing there with the campaigns that you're doing, this is like, this is stuff that our company, um, we actually, when we when we were started doing a lot of influencer marketing campaigns, this was like 2018. We we built out that that kind of arm of the the sales department, and uh, mm-hmm. those influencer campaigns, they're like, how do I put it? Anything that's like a people business, that's that granular and complicated, where you know you're going to need influencer managers to hound all these teenagers halfway across the world to make sure they do their deliverables on time, so the client's happy. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. like you're paying them like a salary. So you're assuming the risk anyway, even if they don't deliver. It's just everything about it is fucked. And the margins aren't great just being a middleman in general. I hate everything about that type. Like, But what you described where um, advertisers are buying more and more media rather than custom activations, um, I think that 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 is very much where the real money is. And I think Twitch has realized that. I think everyone's realized that. And the only one actually selling media in the space uh, are the streaming platforms uh, directly, right? Facebook basically like connected their whole ad platform with their Facebook gaming platform. Um, they are, uh, Twitch has you know put more of a focus on selling media rather than custom. And this is where we're trying to come in and, and say, look, um, we're going to build the content. Like we're going to build these shows that are recurring, episodic, have a name. You know, rather than having one guy make a show for 10,000 people on Twitch, now we're going to have, you know, sorry, rather than having one guy make a show that's eight hours long, we now have 10 people making a show that's three hours long. We're packing that content in. And now that we are building these shows out and, and this, this, these content properties, I know I haven't talked about the IRL stuff, but be happy to go and do it if you're interested. Um, but basically, now that we own those shows, We can basically say, you know, we're inserting this ad break every 15 minutes. Uh, Basically, basically we we get to define the ad inventory and then sell that. And then, you know, rather than trying to sell brands on this vision of some kid promoting their product, um, now we're selling them on just media buys, which is something they're already familiar with. There's just more money in it. It's way more scalable. Um, Everything about it is just just a win. I I really like that's the better way of going about it. That This way, like, it's even better for the streamer. It's literally better for all parties involved, right? Like, for the streamer, you don't want to be, like, shilling 
products to your fan base all the time. What you value is growing your fan base and making sure that it stays healthy. Um, mm-hmm. So when, when the streamer works with us on these shows, for example, they get phenomenal content for their channel. They get paid for it. They get all the sub revenue, all the donation revenue, all the extra viewership, all the YouTube traffic. They get everything to build their brand mm-hmm. by partnering with us on shows. Um, but then, you know, the, the brands rather than like going, going through, going through us in order, there's really only three parties. There, there's the, the sponsor, there is the streamer, and then there's the esports team, right? And, and the, the, really, I think the, the, the first company to find uh, the business model that benefits all three is really going to be the one that succeeds. And I, I personally, I think we found that model. And um, I think, you know, just the, the first couple months of, of our shows have, have proven that. Mm. You're right. It's, it's, it's a conversation I've had with a few of my clients before, and it's always that. Like the first point you said is following up these influencers to make sure they actually do their deliverables on time can be very hard. And, you know, sometimes that's why companies will come to us because we've got a personal relationship with a lot of them and that makes it a bit easier with either the influencer directly and or the manager. So we can, we can talk them through and we can help them to understand the benefit of, you know, doing a, a proper, like having a proper relationship with us and doing extra deliverables for free to make more commission, this kind of stuff. But there was another, there was another point and I just kind of semi lost it. That's it helping spend spending money to help the influencer promote what they're already doing so that's one thing you said so you know by joining your campaign the influencer is still getting their subs they're still getting their ad revenue but they're also using this cool content that they can redistribute repurpose but also to grow their channel i think that's that's been something that i've been trying to educate a lot of influencers on as well with some of the companies i work with which is how can you use this 5k 10k 15k budget i have how can you use this to grow your channel not just promote something, you know. And, and a very basic example is when I was doing my um, promotions for AMD, I was basically teaching people how to build a PC over four weeks. On the fifth week, I'd give it to a PC modder, he'd jazz it up, then we'd give it away at the end. But as part of that campaign, you know, I was able to use the modders' Facebook pages, which were much bigger than mine, because this was the day when, you know, Facebook was king. And I was also charging a stellar $300 marketing budget to AMD at that time which not only guaranteed that the campaign was was a success because 300 bucks would get you 100,000 views in those days, yeah. but also it grew my page. So I got revenue, my Facebook page gathered more likes, and then I could upsell the next sponsor to keep doing yeah. more. And I, think, and I think that's a great way of thinking about it. You know, we did a campaign with Unicorn with the Fortnite guy where we gave him something like 8 to 10K to run a tournament to give away to his fans because he does that all the time. He does public kind of... Uh, public tryouts for his esports team and you know the whole fortnight section at the moment is going through this rampant thing of giving away money for retweets and crazy things like that too but you know we're saying to him that this is our idea and our budget but make it look like your idea and your budget and your fans will love you because they'll be like hey he's giving away this money to me you know he's such a good guy but really it's coming from the brand and uplifting them i think another really interesting point that you talked about as well which is what you're doing is you realize that you're just promoting everybody else's game and playing them at the same time. So why don't you just create your own game and promote that? You've got the right audience. And this is something that's been a, a large passion of mine, talking to a lot of my, my personal friends who are large influencers. Often you won't see an influencer launch their own company until they're on the downslope, until they've got a million subscribers and they're only getting 20,000 views per video now and their channel's kind of in the death rolls. And that's the wrong time to do that. And saying that, once again, you don't own your audience, 
if you don't have something else, but you also don't have anything for the long term. You know, I've got a direct example of a guy I know. He's got two channels, one 500, one 300K subscribers, CSGO creator. He made a ton of money during the whole skin gambling saga, but he just fell out of love with the game. He didn't want to make content anymore. He didn't want to stream. But the only thing, the only way he ever knew how to make money was through that. And he had no equity in with these companies. He got paid 50K to do a video here, 40K to do a video there. But maybe if he just requested half a point in equity in some of these companies as he was going along and said, look, pay me 5K instead of 50 and I'll take 0.25% in equity in your company for this promo and I'll be exclusive to you and I'll put you in every video for the next three months, the next six months, the next 12, something like that. Because then at least he has something to, you know, to fall back on in the end, whether it's a product he directly owns, like his own app that we're seeing one of our partners is Playside Studios and they've got multiple influencer-owned apps now, a baby one, a meditation one, a female-focused fitness one with more coming, or whether that's just simply promotion for equity in companies as an advisor or, you know, as a, as a marketing head. So it makes perfect sense that you've gone along that same thinking line as well, which is, you know, by pro, right, you know, if you're a lifestyle influencer, they're all, I think the past 12 months in lifestyle influences has been why am I promoting everybody else's workout equipment? I'll just make my own brand. And now there's like, now there's too many. There's like 60 different brands where you can buy sports bras and tights from, but it's similar thinking. I think it's just kind of the pattern that technology creates in pretty much every sector is basically as technology gets better, um, the, the barriers get stripped away from certain industries. And at a certain point, I'll use video as an example, like, you know, growing up in like the nineties, if I had a cool idea for a TV show in order to get my content in front of other people and get my show in front of somebody, it was impossible. I needed millions of dollars, huge production staff, partnership with a TV network. Uh, like the, the networks had so much power because there are all these barriers uh, to, to creating broadcasted shows. Um, and, you know, now if I have a video idea and I want to get it in front of people, I can get it in front of people in five seconds. I record it on my phone, put it on YouTube. It's in front of everybody. So, you know, now it's like the quality of content is kind of the determining factor and not like these moats that people had set up in these archaic industries. And, you know, we're going to see that in pretty much everything, right? Like, I think making products is getting easier too. There's plenty of vendors that, you know, influencers can partner with to create their own products, their own whatever. Um, and yeah, you know, a lot of times if you have the distribution, you should just own the product. Yeah. Yeah, I think part of part of what you're saying is is something that scares me the most about esports teams is overheads and the amount of bodies that are required to do certain things. And if you look at like a traditional news organization, you look at the six PM nightly news, you've got, you know, five or six hosts that are on camera, you've got multiple people with camera equipment, producers, writers, marketers, you know, et cetera, et cetera, a large live facility. And a, a direct example I used when I talked to KPMG recently was Look, here's one guy who lives in Sydney, Australia, called Laserbeam. He gets 135 to 175 million video views per month. He has one part-time manager, and I'm fairly sure, you know, most of these guys have an editor. They pay 50 bucks a video. He lives in Cambodia, and that's his overheads. And he's getting as many or more views than the whole of, say, Channel 7 in Australia, which I think is our biggest channel. And, you know, these news organisations, the same too. Um, you know, one influencer like the Fortnite guy who just posted about Fortnite news it's literally him in his bedroom and he edits his own videos, but he gets more viewership than so many of these mainstream news channels that are trying to cover other things too. And that's, yeah, I think that's something that influencers can solve, right? But it's that automation I think is is a very important part of what you're, of what you're talking about. And I think is, as far as, 
sponsorship and brands working with X and Y and spending their money as a whole, people have tried. Like we've got Tribe and the Right Fit and this kind of automation platforms. And we've got one here in Australia called Pro Galleria that signed up as well, where a sponsor can browse kind of, you know, what what can you buy? And they can browse that. But they still still feel like there's a trend that's gone away from that back to say myself where people want some tailored campaign and they want someone with that personal relationship to talk to them. So I'm stuck. I'm stuck between the two, between kind of what I'm doing and part of what you're saying is contradicting my work, but it's also agreeing with some of my thoughts that I've had in the background. So I probably didn't explain that very well, but it's an interesting thinking exercise for me. It's all good, man. There's a lot of moving parts to the space. You know, I think, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Look, look, I think at the end of the day, the industry just has so much opportunity right now and it's growing so quickly. It's just people are kind of misrepresenting where the growth is happening, right? Really, the big movement that started all of this is Twitch getting acquired by Amazon. And Twitch mm-hmm. is a live stream gaming platform. And because of that acquisition, right, Facebook invested billions into their own gaming live stream platform. YouTube invested billions into their own gaming live stream platform and everybody was paying millions to steal each other's influencers and stuff. And I think all of these companies are, are just doing it in a fundamentally stupid way because I think yeah. the for Twitch, the live stream gaming platform, the live streaming part is infinitely more important than the gaming part. Um, but people think it's the combination of the two that you need, uh, whereas I, I very much disagree. I think just live streams are inherently interactive as soon as you add a chat room. And I think Twitch's growth, the growth of esports, all of this is just attributed to people craving interactive entertainment. And you see this even on Netflix, right? Like Bandersnatch or the Black Mirror episode, right? It's like a choose your own adventure thing. Like, I think that's really the, the future. These shows are going to um, create more and more ways for you to impact what happens on screen. And I think the audience is going to love that. So um, everything we do in our company, it's all about interactive entertainment, right? The game we make, mm-hmm. the shows we make. Um, yeah. yeah. And that's the massive trend in traditional sports now as well. You know, I got a friend who runs a company called bench vote kind of similar, you know, who was the MVP of the NFL match? Well, let's just go to the crowd of 50,000 and they can vote for it. Why should we let someone, you know, some random dude in a suit shoes? Or I remember even seeing like a, someone's trying to launch like this blockchain NFL where the fans can pick everything, like who comes off the field and on the field and what play do you make? And don't know success of how that would work, but, it's almost like a limited limited amount of control that you can give to these audience members to feel involved. And we've seen that we've seen like the culture of that, right? Like Twitch plays Pokemon. Mm. We've seen um, you know, donations for streamers to do certain actions. Um, we've seen now, say with Live, with um, you know, the VR titles, you can influence what happens in the game by donating bits or typing exclamation mark bomb in Beat Saber and it sends a bomb at them. So wow. definitely. Yeah, people are starting to get more involved, and I think that that's a trend that will increase. And, you know, Liv, um, AJ, and for, for anyone who's listening, I think we published the podcast with him recently and the VODs up online, et cetera. Really eccentric guy, but but very cerebral. And, you know, he, he says the same stuff. I think he's saying that what we're seeing right now is Twitch is the Stone Age, and it's come so far from Justin TV. Like, do you remember when Twitch was banning people from not playing games? There was yeah. a... a StarCraft 2 host that cleaned her room. She got banned off Twitch. And now it's the fastest growing, largest largest category right? as a whole. So, you know, there's so much more development, so much more development to be had and to be done. Oh, absolutely. Mm. What about what about other games for you guys? 
So why, you know, obviously you're not in franchise leagues. That's a whole discussion in itself. Um, and we've already kind of touched on that, I guess. But what what goes through your mind when you're picking a new game to jump into? Do you do like a, like a profit and loss per title? Um, how do you weigh up, you know, fighting games versus Rainbow Six Siege, FIFA, PUBG? And I'm just rattling off what's on your website, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 basically just a very complicated decision every time with like 20 different factors at play. All of them have different weights. Um, yeah, we, we factor in what is the salary market, like what is the team that we sign going to cost us, which players are available. Like mostly, personally, I think it's all about timing and information. That's what I think player acquisition is about. I think mm-hmm. uh, you need to know when people are between contracts. You need to know when... Um, uh, you basically, you basically need to know when to strike because, you know, signing rosters in esports is all about being opportunistic and getting the timing right. At the end of the day, there's no like anti-poaching rules really anywhere. Um, it's very wild westy, uh, and you just need to be, you need to know who the best players are, when they're available, what's important to them, so that you can sign them. And you need to make sure that you're always caring about your results and focusing on making sure your roster performs well because if your roster performs well uh you can always sign the best players whereas you know like lebron's not going to play for i don't actually know any nba team whichever one's bad he's not going to play for them yeah so i just i just came to that thought kind of putting some thoughts together from what you said before and what you said now and it really seems the issue with being an esports team is you take all of the risk almost none of the reward you're paying these players a salary to be contracted to you and you're not receiving any of their Twitch revenue, ad revenue, et cetera. And often these players aren't creating any content anyway because they're just focused on playing. Um, You know, you're required to sell sponsorship on their behalf, but you're not their manager. So you can't sell direct sponsorship for them. And that's the lawsuit between Tafui and Faye's kind of broken down really about being his manager as well as his team. Um, And you're also not really taking much prize money. You know, a lot of these teams are taking anywhere from zero to 20% prize money. And I think that's, it's something that I've had to educate external investors on a lot, like especially my discussions around 2018. You know, everyone wanted to buy a team at that time. And a poker player who's in partnership with us now, you know, he had the misconceived idea that seemed to be quite common is that esports is like horse racing. So he explained it as in horse racing, you own the horse and you employ the jockey and you keep like 99% of the winnings. So your goal really is to win win a million-dollar cup, you know, give the jockey a 5K bonus, a 10K bonus, and those numbers might be blown out. Who knows? But essentially it's, it's that. Whereas esports is the opposite. And by winning the $35 million Dota 2 International, you know, $15 million first place, you're not raking in 14 for your team and giving out the rest of your players. You know, you're giving the majority of that to the players. You know, like all the irrationality in the space is actually really easy to explain. Like basically... Esports just checks a lot of boxes for like just venture capitalists. It, it, you know, it's a young new industry. It's exciting. The PR around it is all positive, very hyped up. Mm. And, you know, it's it's an opportunity in their eyes to come in and own a space and, 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 you know, get a big win. So because of that, you had all these people flock to esports that knew nothing about esports. This happened around 2015, 2016 mostly. Started with the NBA investors. And these folks would just like, I mean, just the numbers, man. Like, man, at the time, the biggest teams were TFM and Cloud9, and they must have been making like somewhere between like five and eight million a year in revenue, like nothing crazy. Um, Because this was a very long time ago, right? And uh, 
this is just me ballparking too. I don't know their exact numbers, um, but I'm pretty sure it's like fairly accurate. Uh, like these VC back teams would come in and raise like absurd amounts of money very, very quickly. Like 15 to 30. I don't know. They would basically just come in, offer to triple the salary market for whatever players they want to pick up. And they gave them some short-term wins, right? Which allowed them to raise more money. And you, you really had this influx of folks that were, you know, in the business of raising money and not in the business of building a business. And the issue is that it creates this feedback loop. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy where now that some people have raised money and they've upped the salary market, it means all those players in that game that had the salary market affected, now they want more money. So all the other teams, right, inevitably after a few years, also start raising money, right? And then eventually things like ego get into play and everybody's, I don't know, just, just lighting cash on fire, overpaying for players. Everyone's hyping up how great esports is despite their businesses not being great because that hype is a net benefit for everybody. And then you get big publishers like Blizzard coming in to capitalize on it with leagues like Overwatch League. And, and, and really, it's a, what, what, what happens is you create this massive hype engine where everybody's talking about all these positives of esports, but nobody's talking about like the realities or like the, the proper way to build the business, right? And before all of that VC interest, the space didn't have all that money. When the space didn't have all that money, the only businesses that were around were the ones that were sustainable. They were profitable. It was like not crazy margins, but like everybody's business worked. Every esports team was profitable. Um, it was just like an industry where we were figuring things out and we were like going to build it the right way. Right. And I think when you get like all this cash injected into an ecosystem so quickly, you're going to see a lot of disruption and it's very tumultuous. But, uh, you know, the, the, the teams that are just building rational businesses are going to be the winners in the end of the day it just it, there can't be any other outcome nobody's gonna turn around and flip phase clan for a billion dollars supreme sold for like half a billion what the fuck do you think that company is worth like uh, this was like recently too i think um yeah what did victoria's secret just sell for like 350 you're gonna tell me phase clan is worth two-thirds of victoria's secret it's fucking ridiculous i mean all the debt stuff aside but yeah, I don't know. It's just, I, I, I don't know. I, I think the valuations right now are just so absurd. And I think there's the byproduct of people pushing these absurd, like just this absurd, unrealistic narrative about what the future of the industry is. I don't think it's at all in line with reality. And now the part that really tilts me the most, and this is just a, a pattern I've noticed throughout my life is like, I mean, I was giving speeches in 2016 at conferences talking about why Overwatch League is just like a terrible investment or like why these franchise slots, you know, might not be the best way to, uh, for the industry to proceed. But, uh, you know, now it's kind of becoming like, like most people think that way now, whereas back then everybody was all about Overwatch League. I don't know. It's just, it's very, um, I don't know. One day there'll be validation. We'll see. I don't know. I think it's, it's like a, it's that classic startup case of overfunding, right? Like you see this in so many emerging industries and, you know, a lot of my knowledge and for anyone listening, most of my initial knowledge from anything to do with capital and startups was from a couple of podcasts like Startup by Gimlet Media and The Pitch by Gimlet Media. And it was a common thing they went over a lot, which was, you know, companies just raising too much money. They start buying Lamborghinis. They start paying wages, you know, to the founder that it's like 500K, you know, they start hiring employees they can't afford and, you know, it's kind of like creating that false economy. And I witnessed that firsthand here in Australia. We had 
one team who kicked it all off here in Australia. They started paying their players six to $900 a week um, under the guise of we want to support our players the best and we want to look after them. But that didn't happen because the company died because they couldn't afford to pay any staff and they ran out of money. They couldn't get any sponsors. And that started the wave since then, you know, and I was in a round table with um, kind of, uh, you know, marketing people from NVIDIA and Intel and some traditional sports people and a lot of the, the uh, esports team CEOs and also the investors slash owners of these teams. And one of them spoke up and it was a really good conversation. He's a very, very honest, very Aussie bloke. And he just said, guys, why the fuck are we all spending so much money on CSGO salaries just to have the best team? None of our teams in Australia at that time were even top 15, top 20 in the world. So can we all please just agree to stop spending $900 a week on players that all have 400 Twitter followers each? Because there's just no point. And the best you could hope in a sponsorship at that time, and I know because I was a sponsor, was, you know, 30, 30 to, to 50K a year. And even at that stage, it was questionable. Even at that stage, I had to defend to, to keep my team sponsored because they would help me physically because I was the only employee in Australia. So at least they had that merit where they could come and help me set up and pack up at events, which probably could have just paid a high school student $10 an hour to do or 20, something like that. Our minimum wage is a bit higher than the US, but it uh, it definitely makes sense. And it's concerning when you see the news reports from $3 million um, League of Legends contracts and you see, um, you know, 300K salaries for a lot of these players. And one of the streams I did last week was Jeremy, who's a playing manager for a lot of CSGO pros and FIFA pros like Scream and Nothing and, you know, a lot of these legends in the industry saying that, yeah, the players are the ones that are winning right now. And I think it's no better time to be a big content creator. Sorry, your mic is muted, by the way. Um, there's, there's no better time to be a big content creator and there's no better time to be, than to be a top player than right now, I think, in the history of esports. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Like the players are always the winners, right? Because at the end of the day, when you have several VC-backed companies competing for the same resource, which like the only thing overlapping all these teams is they all need to sign influencers. So um, yeah, the, the cost of influencers is going to skyrocket, right? And um, yeah, I mean, some of the prices I'm hearing now are just like, I don't know. It, it's There's still plenty of money to be made because at the end of the day, it's a lot, it's a lot like data, it's like there's an indefinite ocean, uh, endless ocean of influencers. Um, it's just about like finding the ones that are the right fit for your goals and your company. Um, I definitely don't think there's like a finite pool or anything. Um, every day yeah. there's a million new influencers growing and, and, and coming up. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I think it is a great time to be a player. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to see how the industry corrects if it can. Um, so you said, like you mentioned, it, you mentioned a couple of numbers. Can you put, like there's one demographic of people that listen to this podcast who are outside of the industry that look at it for information. So oh. if you were to boil, if you were to boil down like some specific numbers in the industry that you're seeing, you know, pay, player salaries, franchise values, um, sponsorship values, et cetera, what, what are some numbers that stand out to you for, for better or for worse? Oh man, that's a very broad question. There's a lot of relevant numbers. Um, they're all... Yeah. And- Brought on purpose. I want to see where you take it, basically. Yeah, yeah, they're all like useful for different reasons. Um, I don't, I don't know, man. You got to be more specific than that. I can't. It's tough to just like spit out random numbers because I don't. I don't in my head, I don't have them ranked like in in order of interestingness. Uh, if that makes sense. 
Is there a specific game title, say non-franchised or even franchised, that you wanted to get into where the numbers just didn't line up? And can you give any specific examples um, about, yeah, you know, about numbers? Yeah. Um, I mean, the numbers don't line up in most games. Counter, Counter-Strike is uh, like right on the line. I love that game so much. I think it's it's such a good eSport. It's just a, a real proper sport. There was a team... What what team was it that recently came out that said they're losing a million to two million a year on on CS:GO? Uh, any team in the top ten? Mm. Uh, yeah, any team in the top ten would be losing at least that much per year. Yeah. Mm. So if you flip that question around the opposite way, then like why why the current games that you're in specifically? I'd love to hear from you fighting games, um, and then after that, separately Rainbow Six Siege. Like, why are you in those two games? Yeah, for sure. Because they're two that I've been on a mission to learn a lot more about. Yeah. They're, um, so, to start with uh, fighting games. Um, mostly where it's MASH-focused uh, team, but we have the Evelyn Street Fighter here and there, um, and Brawlhalla as well. Uh, honestly, I just think the fighting game community is really engaged. I think that if you if you were to somehow quantify the amount of buzz or clout or community engagement that different games and esports have fighting games are shockingly high up on the list um i'd say that collectively all fighting games are absolutely a top 10 esport um maybe top 5 even um it's just that the vc uh market never latched onto them because the fighting games never did an nfl style league and that was really the narrative that investors were buying into for those, you know, crazy valuations. The, the, they really felt like they were buying real estate. Um, so because yeah. fighting never had that, the salary market never became absurd. It's more or less uh, similar to what it was, um, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, it has been going up like, you know, a lot year over year. I'd say maybe like 50. I mean, it's different for every player, honestly. Some players are... Anyway, I won't get into all the weeds of it, but basically we're in Smash because you get all that great exposure that um, expensive games give you, uh, but it's just super cost-effective because the salary market is very reasonable. Um, mm. But I think more and more people are kind of wising up to that. So, you know, we, we've, had our, we've had our Smash players for years and years and years at this point. It's been a while since we've looked at that salary market, uh, to be honest, because, um, you know, once uh, you get kind of like diminishing returns uh, in sync... And how do I put this? Certain esports are played one versus one instead of team based. And the esports that are played one versus one, you get like diminishing returns on how many players you sign as an org. Because like mm-hmm. if, if you're a Counter Strike organization, you know, there's no reason to have a second or a third or a fourth Counter Strike team in most cases. Um, it's kind of the, 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 the same thing for fighting games. So yeah, we just haven't really looked around that market too much lately. But Rainbow Six, though, Rainbow Six is just a phenomenal esport right now. The community is so engaged. The Reddit's super active. They have a phenomenal revenue share program. They're building their league in a responsible way rather than just trying to milk, you know, uninformed investors for hundreds of millions. Um, I really like their plans for the league. It's all just like stable, responsible esports building. The community's great. Um, you know, the, 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 the pro players are great. They make content. I don't know. It's just, it's kind of on the come up and, uh, we kind of see it as mini counter-strike, um, that is going to, you know, continue to grow. Yeah. Another, another argument I've seen for 
Smash or the FGC is that if you sign four players, you have four chances at winning the tournament rather than if you're in CS, you've got five players, a coach and a manager. So you're paying seven salaries for one chance to win a tournament. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we've seen some teams take that to the extreme end of the spectrum, right? Like Echo Fox signed like 40 Street Fighter pros or something at one point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some teams can can take that route, you know. I, I think the, the esports titles that are played one versus one are a little bit uh, our specialty because, you know, all these other teams that come from League of Legends or Counter-Strike, they're used to these five-player games where they're building a team and a roster. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, we come from Hearthstone, so we're very familiar with, you know, signing a lot of individual pros, um, kind of being selective with the ones that are going to get us the results we want. Mm-hmm. And I think the diminishing returns um, concept you're talking about makes perfect sense in regards to sponsorship as well, looking at the market. You know, it's important for any brand to be diversified across multiple things. And I think one of the main problems we saw in the past was still a series, you know, sponsoring everything in Counter-Strike 1.6. And when you sponsor the, you know, I think out of the top 10 teams in the world, they sponsored like was it five at one stage or something like that. You know, at the same time they had EG, Navi, Tyloo in China, Team Immunity in Australia, SK and Fnatic, both in Sweden. I mean, that's six. That's six alone. Um, I mean, at that stage, Immunity probably wasn't a top 10 team, but you get the idea. And yeah. um, that was part of, I, th- I think that was part of the downfall where they were really like the number one mouse, number two, number two mouse kind of in the world as far as esports and gaming goes, um, you know, under Razor. When um, Logitech decided to take a hiatus for 10 years and then come back and, you know, really kick over the market. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, no, it definitely makes sense to me. And I think along those same lines of what you were thinking about, kind of just feeding the VCs what they think they want, that's a really interesting thing for me around Haddo, which is this uh, augmented reality game, which is basically like dodgeball, but augmented reality, so you're throwing Hadoukens at each other, this kind of stuff. And to me, it seems to fit that narrative of what you're saying is that this is what the TV executives think that esports is and think that they want. And can you use something like this for the betterment? Can you use the hype of esports initially, have that correction, but now everybody's so engaged and educated on it, do we come out at the other end so much better than we ever could have if we just stuck with Counter-Strike, which, like you said, yes, amazing competitive title, and that was the game that I played most seriously, but lots of troubles in the current market because um, I'm sure that, um, you know, CBS doesn't want to sign terrorists versus counter-terrorists with AK-47s and bombs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a bit of bit of an IP issue there, but I, honestly, I think that's becoming um, less and less of a deal breaker for brands. Like they're kind of opening up to the idea of you know, video games don't cause violence, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, it, it's a sport that's been around for twenty years. Uh, you know, I, I think people are people are very much warming up to Counter Strike a little bit more. Um, but yeah, honestly, just in general, I, I think all the growth is going to be in the non-gaming parts of the space. It's also just the best space to be involved in anyway, because um, the uh, you're just not like bidding on the same stuff as other VC-backed companies. It's just like inherently mm-hmm. less unprofitable. Um, so yeah, I really think that's an area where, where more folks should be looking. And um, yeah, we'll just keep rolling. You know, we'll keep doing our thing, rolling out our products this year, and. Uh, you know, see how they're received. Yeah. I know we both have to head off, but there's, there's one thing I wanted to ask. I mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I watched your stream many years ago and you had an alcohol sponsor on there. Is that, was that true? You did. Yeah. I'd love for you to talk about how that worked. What were the restrictions and 
and how did you get around them for that? There's been some discussion around, you know, right, games doesn't allow gambling but allows alcohol, um, you know, restriction of who can watch it. I think I remember you having a large disclaimer on the screen throughout the whole time that says, you know, this content does involve alcohol, you need to be 21 or 18, depending on your region. I'd love for you to just give like the general general runaround of how that worked. Um, yeah, that must have been during the time that I was a full-time streamer. Um, yeah. I did a few different alcohol campaigns for Twitch. Um, I want to say that one was a Johnny Walker, the one you're thinking of. I think so. I'm pretty sure it was a whiskey or something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that you know, really it's just uh there there's usually some little logo you have to put on screen just for compliance reasons. But I mean, beyond that, um, the, the, the risk really isn't like legal or anything with promoting alcohol. The risk is, um, you know, how comfortable are brands going to be working with you? Um, if you were to promote that kind of product, right? So for example, mm-hmm. I think for like the original, like let's say TSM Fortnite roster, it would have been a really bad idea for them to promote alcohol because they had such a young fan base. Um, whereas mm-hmm. strategy game fans are fans. Like I said, this is like an older crowd, usually college educated. They're like, um, they like strategy games. They like thinking they like Reddit. They like, uh, gadgets and tech. And, and for that kind of crowd, that's a little bit older. I think, um, you know, it's a little bit on brand for us to do, uh, mm-hmm. a one-off whiskey stream here and there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the last thing too, I've been doing some discussion around chess as an esport. Like we've seen a lot of chess pros take to um, take to Twitch to do streaming. We've seen these chess pro leagues that set up these kind of semi-franchise looking teams. And you know, I had Nick Barton, the head of BDM of Chess.com, here is you know on on the podcast as well to have a bit of a chat. Is that something that you that you see yourself or other you know esports teams getting into once again outside of that non traditional gaming market? Uh, that sounds awesome. Honestly, that sounds uh, very on brand for us. And yeah, I mean, you know, chess is taking that leap from tabletop play to digital. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I saw card games do the same thing in my career. Um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, we, we honestly haven't looked into uh, chess esports yet. Uh, not going to lie, but I will hit up the acquisitions team right after this and we'll, we'll look into it. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll be in touch if you need any help. Let me know. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. Man. Well, it's been good. We've we've gone just over an hour now, and I know you've got a lot of I think you've got a lot of work to do in a game to develop. There was one question actually um, that someone was asking me while he was saying this: is when does the game come out? Do you have a release date? Um, I do, but it's not public. <laughs> is that one? Yeah, fantastic. And free free to play or or uh, oh, it'll be free to play. Yeah, fully free to play. Uh, least pay to win strategy game ever. Just download it. It'll be sweet. Cool. That's another win for me. I'm a, I'm a tight ass when it comes to games. So, <laughs> I'll say the, the probably uh, early to mid next year. Yeah, yeah, fantastic, mate. Well, for anyone who's listening in live on on Twitch, LinkedIn, watching the VOD, or listening to the audio only podcast, where can they follow you and your team? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, just a uh, Tempo Rainad on Twitter. R E Y N A D. Yeah, just. I don't know. Google me. All my pla- all my platforms here. This, all my platforms are there. I don't know. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not trying to gain followers anymore, man. I'm washed. I'm out of the the the, the <laughs> contact journey. I'm just doing all the the behind the scenes stuff now. Yeah, fantastic, man. Well, thanks for coming on. It's been good. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Right, bye. Thank you.
And thanks to everyone else for listening in, whether you're live on Twitch, LinkedIn, listening to the VOD or whatever else. We've got plenty more interviews like this coming up and some awesome ones next week, which include the uh, founder and CEO of We Are Nations and going to be drawing a lot of comparisons between where the esports market is and gaming market, as well as with the music market, because there's a lot of tie-overs between the two. So we can't wait to do that. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg.